Hey, I know you guys want to get to the podcast, but if you're a new listener, there are so many people who we have interviewed at this point, and the coronavirus has given us unprecedented access to all the people we've always wanted to talk to. Next up, Barack Obama. We just had... Um, <laughs> we had Lydia Yankovska, we, yeah. we had Jennifer Rivera-Rice, we had Russell Thomas, Emily Pogorelts, Justin Werner, Zachary James, Laura yes. Dixon Strickling. All right, all right, that's all right, right, just, right, right. That's just, yeah, that's just during the coronavirus, yeah. but um, That's just off the top of my head during the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think we're all looking forward to our very special episode where we hold a seance and uh, talk to the spirit of Vox. For an entire hour. Yeah, actually, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to join us for that one. She's going to take. Oh, Shaw has something to say. I, you know, the world's ultimate opera fan, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, um, Renee Fleming and Joyce DiDonato. Um, they both wanted to be on, so we're just going to put them on the same call because, you know, we're going to kill two birds with one stone. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's coming We're just up too soon. busy. We have, we have too many people booked. We're going to put them together. Nene seems fine with it. But seriously, uh, subscribe to the podcast on however you listen to podcasts and then just scroll down into our archives and see who we've interviewed. Usually their names appear as the title of the episode. And don't forget to share on Facebook and share on Twitter, even though we probably are not tweeting. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box School. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show that's normally live, but just a podcast for now, about opera, period, from the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, with co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. All right, tonight, in the final OBS episode of the spring 2021 season, the worst season ever. Coach Weston Williams, guest assistant coach Harry Rose, wrap up spring training for your ears with what Weston describes as the best finale in all of opera. But first, it's the man of the hour, the courageous and graceful rising star tenor who has thrown the gauntlet down in his call to action for opera companies to start engaging more black artists now. Creative consultant Oliver Camacho goes inside the huddle with Frederick Ballantyne. Two-minute drill. We hope Alexander Neef has a nice stockpile of N95 masks. That man's going to be doing a lot of flying. Great show for you, however you are going to be listening to it. A little bit of sports talk. All the major leagues are still trying to figure out who's going to be first back. We thought it was going to be the MLB, and now the players and the management cannot come to an agreement. So it looks like it's going to be the NBA to come back. And how marvelous would it be, in my opinion, that in what is historically and predominantly a league dominated by phenomenal players who are also black, to have that be the first league back that we are all cheering to succeed and cheering to give us the sports that we want. Would that not be such poetic justice and such a poke in the eye of this completely insane president? 
All right, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, you missed our verbatim reading of Frederick Ballantyne's demand to American opera companies and performing arts organizations for racial equality, inclusive casting, and diverse programming. It was a galvanizing call to action in a moment where black people all over the world were reeling from the latest injustice of racist police brutality. Oliver caught up with Ballantyne late last week, and they begin their conversation with how black artists feel, quote, othered in the world of opera. But before we join the interview, let's not forget that Frederick Ballantyne is also an incredible singer who has starred as Charlie Parker in Charlie Parker's Yardbird at Seattle Opera. He's brought the role of sport and life to Glimmerglass, English National Opera, the Netherlands Opera, and to the Met. Here's Ballantyne singing Don Jose from Bizet's Carmen for Seattle Opera. Yeah, I think that the opera world, because it's ruled by a board, uh, each company is pretty much ruled by a board, and that board has, happens to be uh, affluent white people. I think I've always felt as if I was an accessory in being there. I felt like uh always felt as if when I'm in some of these spaces, like uh, they're gifting me with allowing me to be there. And that's always been a frustration, but it's something that we all know how to deal with. You know, I mean, we also know how to buckle down and do our jobs and doing very, very well. But um, there was something that felt, it feels like we're being used in a way to me when we have to continually do things like Porgy. And it feels like we're being used when there are so many excellent Black singers out there who don't really get the opportunity to perform on leading stages outside of that specific opera, who never really have the opportunity to find management, who never really have the opportunity even to do Young Artist Program. And I've always known that, and I've always realized how fortunate I was to be where to be where I am now, and I, and I never took any of that for granted. But when a few weeks ago, when, you know... <laughs> when that problem came to the surface for the rest of the world, not just the Black people who are living it, I looked around and I saw that companies were stating things like, we stand with you, we're here for you, but I didn't see some of the biggest companies saying anything. And those companies so recently had profited from the use of Black singers so much. And if ever there was a time for them to step up and show their support, it would have been then, and I wasn't seeing it. And it just... It just made me want to cry. It just made me feel used even more than I already had. It just made me feel like a prop rather than an artist, rather than a person who was employed with the company. And so I felt like something just had to be said. And I know that I, I'm still young in this business. I know that I have, a, I have a good career, but I'm on the way up. But if there's any artists who are known for speaking their mind, it would be somebody like me. And if there's somebody who could recover from pissing off all the opera companies right now, it would be somebody who's young like me. So I did take it upon myself to potentially do that and just say what I think we all were feeling, everybody in the Black community and opera were feeling. 
And I'm glad that it gained traction. I'm glad that people read it and decided to do something about it. Um, I just want to see more happen. I, 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 I want to see guarantees. I want to see promises, and I want to see those promises actually come to fruition. But as far as me being a Black opera singer, I, I've always realized how hard I have to work to get every single role that I've had. I was lucky in high school because I went to a performing arts high school in Norfolk, Virginia. It's called the Governor's School for the Arts. And actually, a lot of other really great Black opera singers went to that school, and white. Um, Marjorie Owens went there. Speedo Green went there. Um, Will Liverman. But while we were there, uh, the heads of the school were very, very clear with us about how reality would be for us if we decided to go in this career. And while we were there, they did shelter us from it in a, in a way. They they were excellent with colorblind casting. They never even thought twice about casting a Black student in a role like Susanna, if that's what they were doing. And we did do full operas back then. We just felt like we belonged when we were there. And it wasn't until later on, and then even when I got to college, actually, I mean, in college at CCM, I felt like uh, I was treated pretty fairly there for the most part. I mean, every now and then we all had to definitely uh, get out there and say, okay, well, some, this is some fucked up shit. Let's work on this. But for the most part, I was treated fairly. But once I got to grad school and YAP and started doing more auditions for big companies, I started realizing how, how not necessarily against, but how um, ambivalent companies were about hiring people that looked like me. And especially once I became a tenor, because when I was a baritone, it was slightly different. I wasn't playing the leading romantic roles. And once I became a tenor and it became apparent that I would be doing those roles, I started seeing such interesting things from the people who were educating me. I had teachers who were saying things like, you should probably sing things like Wagner. It'll be easier for you as a Black person than that. Or you should go to Germany. It'll be easier for you to make a career in Germany. Or maybe you shouldn't try to sing that role. I think that could rile people up. And there's nothing more discouraging for a young singer uh, to be told that they can't do something because of their skin color, to be told that they can't do something because it will upset people to see me kissing a, a white woman on stage. So the last time I heard that is when I decided that I would purposefully change my repertoire from what I was doing to what I'm doing now and be the change that I wanted to see in the world. I firmly believe that if you want something done, you have to do it yourself. And I also realized that I am currently standing on the backs of the men who went before me. And it is my responsibility as a Black tenor in this business to work my ass off so that the young men who are coming up behind me have a position. And so much of the problem with casting and opera, in my opinion, comes from like a lack of imagination. People say, oh, I don't really see you in that role. And what they're really saying is, I have never seen somebody who looks like you in that role. And the only thing to fix that is... So the only way to fix that is to, first of all, pray that they get some imagination. And second, put myself in the role. And that way somebody has seen it. And that way they won't be so jarred by seeing somebody else who looks like me doing it. And I've always had the opinion that for every role that I've done, that another Black man or not many other Black men have done, I am opening that door wider for somebody else behind me. You've, um, you've touched on so many things that I, I definitely want to put a pin in some of them. Uh, one about your courage and uh, assumption that you're going to be able to recover from this uh, PR wise. I definitely want to get to that because I think that's a, on a lot of our minds for you. But as far as like imagination uh, in casting directors and opera companies, I mean, there are examples of 
what's happening in, in other sources of media like television and film where, you know, oh, actually an all black cast or like a mixed race cast or whatever, this actually works and people really embrace it and, and are enjoying it and it's taking off. Like, look at that. Who would have guessed, you know? <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, like, that's all like the most beautiful, uh, like politically correct piece that I've ever seen in my entire life was that Cinderella with Whitney Houston and Brandy back in the day when the prince was Asian and Whoopi Goldberg was his wife and he he had a, uh, was uh, his mother, excuse me, and his father was white. And you know what? Like, of course I was a kid back then too, but at the same time, and I look back at it as, a, it as an adult, that didn't bother me. I don't understand why it bothers other people. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you began talking about this and how uh, opera companies are sort of governed by their boards and their boards are a reflection of the the richest part of the audience. And I know that all these opera companies are thinking about these issues and they want to see the future audiences and they're doing all this engagement and education to grow the audience. Where are they falling down? Where do you think? I mean, like we've already discussed on the show how like competitions and auditions and just being a student of opera is so expensive and it necessarily eliminates people who don't have resources to, you know, keep going uh, in the business and go to graduate school or do an audition tour in Europe or et cetera. I mean, those financial limitations uh, already begin to make it a racist <laughs> field. But can you, already, yeah. can, can you think of other uh, points in the career of a young singer where, uh, the system is failing us. Well, I, I mean, actually, to touch on what you're saying with education, I personally don't, I, I understand. Uh, I, my, I think that I'm a, an exception because I did go to two larger conservatories for my undergrad and master's. I went to the Cincinnati for my undergrad, Cincinnati Conservatory, and I went to Rice University for my master's to so the separate school of music. And in both places, I, I took that, I took the hit, I took the sacrifice, and my family definitely did not have the money um, for me to go there, but I decided to incur some student loans and get that education that I wanted. I went specifically to CCM because there was another Black singer that had gone to my high school that went there, um, and I wanted to go there because I understood that she had a really great education there. But I don't believe also that just because singers can't afford to go to those huge uh, schools like Juilliard, CCM, like Rice, that doesn't mean that like they're so cut off from a future in this field. It just means that the people who lead this field need to be more proactive about <laughs> maybe going to look at other schools because other schools have exceptional singers too, you know? Like maybe um, we need to make the effort to go listen to students who go to historically black colleges and universities instead of just assuming that they're going to come to us because they may not know that that is an option for them. They see so few people like them in their career, then maybe they just never really think about that. But there are amazing voices like at those schools. Sorry, I just wanted to touch on that. Before no, no, no. Before, uh, what was it that you had asked me? No, but I mean, uh, since you're, you know, you're a rising star, if Along the way, aside from the training aspect, there are points along the way where you said, oh, that was, you know, I had to deal with this issue. I'm dealing with it because I really want this. But where you see something happens along the way that would have just discouraged people and just made people quit or get angry or, you know, whatnot. 
Yeah, of course. I think, first of all, it comes with the infusion of classical music into Black communities. Um, again, we think of classical music as something that only white people can have because white people have the money to attend those performances where that's not necessarily true. But if nobody's actually going out into the communities and letting communities knows, know, excuse me, letting communities know that the arts are a resource for them as well, then they have no way to embrace that. If companies don't have things like, I know Cincinnati actually has a community opera day where uh, for Romeo and Juliet, people from the community were allowed to come to the opera for free and they loved it. They screamed, they clapped at all the inappropriate times and it was the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. It lost all of its stuffiness. It felt like something, it felt like I was at a totally different show. It felt, I, it felt like the energy of a rock concert all of a sudden. And I was, I was so excited to have seen that. But I think systemically, the lack of exposure to that very early in our lives as people of color definitely prevents people from finding it later in life. I, I mean, of course, that's just one issue. And that's the first one that comes to mind. Some companies do have the outreach programs where they try to get to out into the world, but they, there needs to be more. There needs to be something that involves not just the children in schools, but also like the families of those children. What do you think needs to change in the culture surrounding opera to make it more inviting for Black people, both the audiences and the performers, but maybe the audiences is more a, a more direct question? I think uh, around the culture of opera, if we're just, if we're talking about Black people and we're just talking about any layman, nobody wants to go to something that they view as stuffy. Nobody wants to attend something that they view as... Um, snooty. And I think, unfortunately, that's still the idea of what we have for opera. I think Black people are right in line with the rest of that idea for most of America, I think. And until we figure out how to, and the reason that I said that that community experience felt like a rock concert is because it certainly took away the dated feel that we have for opera. But I think outside of that, we have to figure out how to see something with which we can connect. And I think when a lot of people are like, oh, let's do a, an opera about Black people, but let's make it about the Black struggle or let's make it about racism. I don't think Black people, why, why the hell do we want to see that? I, it's, it's our lives. I, maybe we don't want to see that every day. And in a way, it feels like we're just pacifying others when we do attend that or when we do have to be a part of that. Whereas so you could have something that shows a very beautiful side of a Black community. And that's something that people will want to see. So maybe black people especially. Maybe there's too much social justice in the opera plots of, you know, so-called, you know, Black operas. Is that what you're suggesting? I'm not saying that it's, I'm not saying that it's too much social justice, but I, what I am saying, it is too emotionally jarring to expect somebody to try to enjoy themselves in that setting constantly. I see. No, I get it. So... There are a lot of white allies, I have to say, in this field. I think that artists especially oh. are, you know, yes. very understanding of what's happening outside of opera. But what would you say to the, this panel that you're talking to today on Opera Box Score? Uh, there's five of us, and I'm the only person of color on it. <laughs> so just for an example. But everybody wants to help. Everybody wants to do something. What would you say to those allies, like something that they could tangibly do that would show their support besides just changing their profile picture to a black <laughs> square? Yeah, God. I mean, there have been so many things that people have posted, like concerning donations and going to protests and actually uh, trying to do something physical. But I feel like one of the most positive things when 
can do is contribute to the grassroots effort of this and understand that we as Black people have a limited voice because our audience is us. For the most part, we hang out with other Black people. And I, I mean, of course, we are there are plenty of exceptions to that. But when you are preaching to the choir, it can only do so much. But our white allies do have the power to preach this struggle that we are living right now to the people that I can't get to, the people that aren't my Facebook friends. They have their conservative friends that they can talk to. They have their Southern families that they can speak to. And I think that the best way to do that is to do some research and figure out how to engage in conversation rather than to incite argument and to do some research and understand what talking points you will hear and how you need to combat them. Um, And that's what I think many people do before they have a debate. I think you need to go into a conversation with somebody who has a view different from what you have, knowing how they're going to question you so you have a way to answer them that actually makes sense to them. Really, that is entirely on the shoulders of our white allies. They're the only ones who have the power to try to get through to the people that will not listen to us inherently. So... I come from, I've said this so many times in the podcast, I'm sure people are sick of hearing me hearing it, but I, <laughs> I, I come from the generation, I'm a Gen Xer, where, you know, of course I was confronted with racist comments, uh, implicit and explicit, and I just learned to smile and to eat their crap and to just do better so that they could not deny my excellence in whatever I was doing. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've navigated these spaces my whole life and I'm not nowhere near as successful as a performer as you are career-wise. And I feel like I, maybe I, I didn't defeat those obstacles or maybe I got discouraged and didn't push further, you know? And mm-hmm. I wonder if, you know, I feel like the younger generation uh, allows themselves to, this sounds really insensitive, but maybe are triggered more easily and are willing to uh, confront racism like right when it happens. Uh, I, I have not done that heretofore, and I'm wondering if now is the time, especially in this moment, to begin to do that. Um, I think that when I started off, when I started with the apps and back when I was uh, in uh, grad school and in undergrad, uh, back then, because, you know, they teach us to live in that little cookie cutter box. And I just, I, when I heard racist comments, I would smile, I would make a joke and I would move forward, forward. Um, I, but then I was with my friend Leah, rec- uh, not recently, but while we were in the Yap at Washington National Opera and a woman was speaking to us. I'm trying to remember exactly what she said. We were at a donor dinner and this woman was like, and where are you, where are you from? And we told her and she asked uh, my friend and are your parents still together? And (laughs) I was like, did she, did this woman really just try this? Did she really try us like that? And my friend very, very calmly stated, yes, my family is still together. We are definitely still together. I, I don't think that that is a thing that, is asked normally in conversation. That's strange. I can't remember exactly how my friend responded, but what she did was the most 
beautiful way of combating the racism that was just thrown in our faces at that moment in time, which is just calmly to state the fact rather than the stereotype that the woman was trying to perpetrate. She didn't respond with aggression. She didn't respond with, with outrage. She responded with love and with education. And I think that's something that we can all do. Yes, I think we are being triggered by what we're hearing because we're currently in such a state of aggression and we're all so frustrated right now. But I think it's important for us to understand that the rage has a place, as does love and all of this. So I think it can be just as effective to calmly and non-combatively explain to a human being why what they're saying is messed up or explain to a human being the truth of a situation rather than what they have heard. Mm-hmm. And because you're addressing them in that way, you may, you're probably more likely to get them to understand what you're trying to say. Um, I think that's better than responding with, with the, with the anger that I think a lot of us have been responding with lately and myself included. But I think, Leading with love is always the best thing to do. Right now, we have to yell to get people to understand that, uh, and it's necessary. But I think that as we continue to move forward, and we are with people who are of an older generation who have older ideas, it's important to just maybe just take a breather before we have that conversation with, before we have the moment to snap on them, and instead just lead for it with some logic for them. And that's all we can really do in the situation. My interaction with people that have been negative interactions have taught me so much, have taught me how to move forward, have taught me how to have a conversation with those people. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's the reason that I'm able to have this conversation with you because I had those experiences. So I don't know, I don't know if that's something that should be on the administrators necessarily. I think that is on the board. And I think, honestly, it's on us as artists to uh, be able to state what we need to state to those people. It's tricky. I mean, like, not everybody is good at it. Not everybody has the the, the patience or the, uh, you said the grace. I think you used the word grace when you're talking about your friend. Or you said the beauty. Yeah. yeah like, to, you know, to, to, to handle that. And, like, we shouldn't expect people to have those skills. Those are very difficult skills. You know, it's hard enough to they get up are and, and to sing color Tura and high D and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. But it's something that I feel like a lot of POCs in this business are, we excel at for that reason. We all excel at that because we've been faced with so many question marks in those settings. And we had to be able to deal with that. And over time, I think we all gained that skill. I think that's pretty uniform uh, across the board for us. So I think it was necessary to, have that so that we can be who we are and so that we can use our voices in the way that we do. So what have the reactions been to you so far, like from your colleagues and from companies that maybe have uh, hired you and want to continue the relationship with you and maybe some com- companies you have contracts with outstanding? As far as companies concerned, I've gotten overwhelming positivity. I've gotten messages from the companies with whom I have contracts uh, that are unfortunately canceled, but and a lot of them apologize. Some of them asking for some to have a conversation. Some of them asking for brainstorming. But overwhelmingly, I've received positive responses from colleagues, from administrators, from companies. Um, there have been some, of course, that I haven't heard from, and I don't expect to hear from everybody. I didn't post that to get a response. I post that just so people could read it and maybe think about it 
but so far, I, I'm, I'm not fearful for myself. I understand that uh, I, I'm realistic to the fact that we probably won't be working for a little bit anyway. And my contracts for the next year or so are set. So I know that I can keep working and get through any negative thing that I have to deal with this, um, deal with in terms of this. But I hope that nobody wouldn't take it so negatively. I think I was just speaking what everyone was saying. But for the most part, I've gotten very positive responses and it's actually incited a little bit of a fire within me to stop being lazy because I, I tend to sit on my couch and watch as things happen and I have very strong opinions and I speak them when I need to, but I get nervous and I, and I doubt myself and I doubt my ability to eloquently say what I need to say and I sit back down because of, out of fear. But uh, if anything, those responses have let me know that maybe I do have a voice, uh, have reminded me that I have a voice that is powerful and that can help people. And right now it's needed. So this has been a difficult conversation and I appreciate that you have been putting yourself on the line, your career, your reputation, uh, in order to speak on behalf of a lot of people. I'm not black, so you're not speaking on behalf of me, but I do feel that you are, you know, uh, and I, I appreciate Well, you understand the struggle in the business. Yeah, I, you truly I, do. I totally do. And I would love to end this interview with a note of positivity. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed on this one. Has there been a time in your career where you felt validated and seen as a black artist? Was there a company or a teacher or a coach or, some, or somebody like that in your recent past or even in your training that really you know, understood and made you and celebrated what you brought to the table? Oh, yes. Most definitely. There have been plenty of coaches and, and conductors and directors who, who truly respect what I bring to the table. I'm, I, I don't mean to say that every corner of this business is racist. I don't even think most corners of this business are racist. And I think that most of the people who engage in this, in this business are beautiful, open-minded people. Um, so yes, I have felt validated in myself as a Black artist many times. Um, yes, many, many, many times. Do you, sure. do you want to advocate for a company out there that's doing everything right or doing a lot right? I mean, it's hard to say who's doing everything right. I will say places like Opera Theater St. Louis have has been on the outreach game and the use of black artists and the hiring of black composers. And they got the jump on that for everybody else. That's always been so impressive to me. I am so, so excited by the number of, uh, uh, BIPOC faces that I'm seeing right now in young artist programs too. Like when I saw that there were two black tenors in the young artist program for Chicago lyric opera, I wanted to weep for joy. I don't get jealous I'm not a jealous person. I, I just got so excited for them because I know what they're going to, I know the struggle that they've had. I know the struggles that they have coming up, but I also know that that door, it will be just a little bit easier for them because of the work that the tenors have had of me that have, because of the work that the tenors ahead of me have done. Uh, companies like Washington National Opera have always had lots of VIPLC uh, young artists, but I think that everybody needs to do more to engage the community to infuse more energy into the opera. I think it just, it takes, it's a grassroots, it's a grassroots effort, in my opinion. It ain't necessarily so. Come on. It ain't necessarily so.
travel, to read in that Bible, they ain't necessarily so. Well, Coming up next, spring training for your ears. Going to wrap up our three-show look at Strauss's Die Frau ohne Schatten. It's Opera Box Score. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. So if you're a new listener, if you have just started listening to Opera Box Score because you saw that we interviewed Lydia Yankovskaya or Zachary James, um, there are more people that you're going to hear from by listening to Opera Box Score. And the only way to get that podcast in your ear holes when it's ready is by smashing that like button or that subscribe button on Stitcher. Don't make us wait. Don't make us beg you again. You know you want to. I'm on my iPhone. I'm doing it right now. It's two taps. It's super easy. Dos tapos. Two taps. So, yeah, be the first to hear all the latest news from the opera world and to hear great interviews on super high-fidelity recording equipment, (laughs) which is our brand during coronavirus. A great film and an even better setup. Let's do some spring training for your ears. Welcome back to spring training for your ears on Opera Box Score with this, our third and final part of Frosch, uh, the Frau ohne Schatten, um, the Strauss masterpiece, the much maligned masterpiece, as we discussed a little bit. On the previous two episodes, we talked a little bit about the the plot and some of the uh, music of the characters. But today we're really getting to the meat of why people who love this opera love this opera. And in my mind, and I think Harry will agree with me, that comes down to the finale, the last moments of this opera. And by, by moments, I mean on a Straussian scale, so like 40 minutes. But <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, it's, still, uh, it's still a wild ride. Um, can you remind us what happened in the last two podcast episodes for those who might be tuning in for the first time? Yes. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, if you if you recall, um, the Empress and the Emperor are having a problem because the Empress needs a shadow uh, in order for the Emperor to not be turned into stone, um, which is... The shadow also serves the function of connoting the the ability or the will to have children. It is there linked. Exactly. And so now um, the Empress and uh, the Emperor, along with the help of the nurse, uh, um, well, the Empress and the nurse, I should say, determined that the best way to do that would be to grab one from a human, which would, of course, kind of destroy the human soul in some way, you know. So they found someone who is willing to never have children ever to take her soul, who is the wife of the dire Barak, no relation. Uh, and um, uh, however, the point we've gotten to, there's been this big sort of cataclysm and everyone has been sort of thrown into this weird sort of magical space. Uh, and we are finally to the point where 
the Empress has realized that Keikobad, the unnamed sort of uh, magical villain, uh, for want of a better term, uh, outside the realm of the story, uh, has determined that it is too late. The Emperor has been turned to stone, but she gets one more chance to drink from uh, a magical pool of water, which will take the shadow from the human uh, and restore the emperor to his unstone glory, which I know makes all perfect sense and uh, is very logical and we're all following very well now. Uh, but this is the point where you just need to sit back and enjoy the ride because this, I, I think the finale sort of begins during this, this part where the Empress is, is trying to figure out uh, whether or not she should take the shadow. I want uh, because I, up, I want to throw a curveball really quickly, and this is for Harry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, since he's like our complete person here, um, the last time we heard about somebody stealing a shadow was in the Venice. Peter Pan. Yes. Oh, I guess there's that. But in the Venice Act of Tales of Hoffman, and <laughs> Hoffman <laughs> is ostensibly a German poet author. Do you see any relationship between E.T.A. Hoffman and Hoffman's, Hoffman's Tal? Oh, that's a good question, especially because I don't know E.T.A. Hoffman super well. I I don't know. I think there is, like, this opera for me, and, like, as I've thought about it and sort of tried to synthesize it over the past couple weeks, I think this, like, the strongest point of this opera and also the point where it fails to convince the most is that it really is like a true hardcore fairy tale. Mm. And I think a lot of people, you know, a lot of adults aren't really into fairy tales and it has a moral and it has, you know, all these different elements of a fairy tale. And I think, you know, E.T.A. Hoffman has that, that same sort of interest in, you know, fantasy and the fantastical and especially sort of those weaving those elements or our perception of those elements into your daily life. And this sort of takes that one level further. This is a very sort of symbolist. There is no daily life. Opera. <laughs> exactly. I think if you, I think it, you have to, you have to sell it a little bit better. It's a, it's a, it's a hardcore fairy tale. Yeah, that's 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 kind of what we're going for. Uh, and George, this is, the, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is really uh, 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 those archetypal sort of um, fairy tale MacGuffins, like the loss of the shadow and the the magical worlds that they're that they're in. I feel like often you know kind of mimic each other because they're working with the same general building blocks. Um, and what really sells a fairy tale, I think, is the execution. Uh, and that really comes down to this really cool moment um, uh, that we get to at this point in the opera, where the Empress uh, is has been sort of on the sidelines trying to figure out whether, whether or not it's worth, you know, saving her husband, the love of her life, for a human um, she's also uh, been quiet for most of the opera until this act where she's exactly. the entire time. And there's a, there's a, an old saying in musical theater, not, not in the opera world really, but in musical theater where if the emotions of the text become too big to uh, speak, 
you have to sing them. And here we have a really interesting example in opera of the opposite. Julia Verde singing the, uh, the em- well, not singing, speaking <laughs> the role of the empress. Uh, and uh, it was really interesting. Uh, I'm going to cut this out of the episode, but when you're we playing this, um, uh, Oliver, you remarked that you thought it sounded out of tune at the very beginning there. Uh, and that's because we have a, one of the coolest parts of how this opera is constructed on a very, very basic level. Uh, this is uh, one of the best examples of Strauss's use of the overtone series in his composition. Now, of course, you, every you know scale is really based on overtones to some extent, but the way Strauss uses it um, is very much in line with how he, as a person who played the French horn, really kind of heard sound and heard orchestration. So what you have there is a fundamental tone layered uh, upon top of that uh, various resonances, playing with the resonances of specific instruments too, to create this huge amplification effect that crushes down into the spoken line with a long, long drone underneath, which is you know something that is prefigured in a lot of prior Strauss works, but has never been used to this extent before. And I see Oliver like oh my leaning God. back on the screen. <laughs> okay, so it's like the uh, it's like the German version of a Rossini crescendo. Okay. Yeah, there you go, Oliver. That might be a better Matt. Stay on the line. I just want <laughs> I just want the audience to not be completely scared about what you just said. By the way, audience, Weston is not a music major. He's a theater I'm major. Not. And the overtone series is a really complicated thing to understand. Matt, can you somewhat explain what overtone series is in a way that might be easier to digest? 
Yeah, of course. So this was definitely something that every music pedagogy or theory class touches on and half the, and the entire class, except for one person who would have been Weston, goes, huh? <laughs> uh, and in every tone that you hear, the fundamental is like the pitch that you would get if you were tuning a piano or something like that. Okay. So the piano would play, the piano will play a pitch, but even though our ears really only process that as one pitch, there were multiple other pitches happening at the same time as overtones. And those overtones are what makes it sound like a piano. And, mm. and when you go to a specific person's voice, what overtones are like, what makes my voice sound like my voice as opposed to Weston's voice. It, and it has to do all kind with the acoustics and the physics and stuff like that, that we don't have time for in this audio medium. <laughs> Thank God. But that is a, 30 second summary of overtone series. <laughs> I think right. the easiest, the easiest way to sort of try it out for yourself. If you have like a, a, a real piano at home uh, is to uh, play a note uh, and then hold down a bunch of other notes without playing them and play that note again. And you can hear those notes that you're holding down in that initial pitch. If you listen hard enough. Uh, and this is what Strauss is bringing out in this writing. And it's a really magical, non-traditional sound that really, really comes through in this opera, especially in this finale part. That sort of chord, I guess arpeggiated chord, can you call it that? Like, I'm not a music theory yeah. person that gets played. It, um, <laughs> it's good enough for it's, all. It's, it's, a roll, it's a long rolled chord. Yeah, what it, whatever it is, is the dun, 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 dun. We get that, like, right at the beginning, and that's when the nurse is saying, like, er wird zu Stein, he'll turn to stone, which is literally, like, and at this point, like, behold the, the stone emperor with the rest of the terracotta warriors. Um, and it's, it's, I, I feel very convinced that, like, the voice of, part of why this opera is so interesting is that, the character we don't see on stage, like the Wizard of Oz, who's like Keiko Bad, who's moving the whole plot, is the voice of the orchestra. And we get, I think we get that again here, where like the, the vocal line is like totally taken out of the equation. And there is a sort of refocusing of this piece and the human's role in this piece as non-musical. And it comes after these trials and it comes after this sort of, you know, they're now... It's, it almost feels like a game show, this act, like where they're sort of consistently like able to move to the next round or not. And like, it's almost like the music is, is on pause for this moment, which I think is what makes the switch to spoken text so arresting and so sort of underscoring of like, just how important the music is in making this a fairy tale it's not a fairy tale because the libretto is kind of fantastical and there's music to accompany it it's, it's a fairy tale because the music makes it that way and you, this speaking continues for a while um we're not we didn't we, we haven't played the whole it's, clip it's, it's um, speaking over the orchestra so it's not zingspiel. Right. it's it's kind of leaving the realm of zingspiel and becoming it's, more into this weird amalgamation of Theater. It's almost postmodern yeah. from what is really a hyper romantic composer. It's it's a really neat moment, but it lasts a long time. Uh, and um, what I next want to sort of point out is sort of how her crisis uh, increases uh, with the orchestra still kind of blaring under her in this sort of uh, very dissonant way until the moment where she finally says, 
ich will nicht, I will not uh, take this shadow from this human person. I do not want to. Not I do not want to. I yes. do not want to. And we get this, like, we it's... Every character in this opera is sort of interestingly both interesting and not interesting at all. And we're clearly supposed to invest the most in the Empress. And this is like, you know, this is the, this is the emotional synthesis of the whole opera and she speaks it. And that was like this tectonic shift from the chaos and the the struggle to find her voice um, to the point where she uh, vehement, vehemently and uh, explicitly expresses her uh, her wish to not take the shadow from this person, even though it's a great personal cost to her and her husband, who's a statue. But then we have this moment, because it's a fairy tale, right? She's learned her lesson, and she gets rewarded for it. The music changes from this big, dissonant crashing and booming to this thawing sound as the emperor sort of becomes unfrozen from stone. She gets, she gets that goal for herself anyway, and she gains back her shadow as well. Uh, I've never seen Frozen, but I feel like there's a great interjection here by somebody who's like a theater queen. <laughs> I'll, I'll insert a good Frozen joke later <laughs> in, in the edit, I'm sure. No, I feel like it should be a song that should I should be singing it to kind of... Oh, just let it go, Oliver. No, that's not the one. <laughs> anyway, if you haven't seen Frozen 2, that's a really good movie. And I haven't I'm, seen either. I recommend it. You should watch that one. Uh, anyway, that's completely beside the point. Uh so there's uh, there's this really this shift in the music that's so extreme, um, and I, really it leaves the sort of scary sort of fantastical world of a lot of the opera behind, and kind of leaves it behind not just for this opera but for Strauss later on as well, because you never really hear in any of his works past this. Uh, music of this violence on the scale of an Electra or a Zalame really ever again. Uh, and it's, and it's, 
I think part it's of really that is because also Huffmanstall died after. Also that, yeah. <laughs> and so, and the and the uh, the orchestra killed him. Uh, <laughs> so you're saying that you're saying that was Strauss's last like explicitly thorny music. Yeah, it it sort of marks, I think, uh, a transition for Strauss from sort of the expressionism that we associate with his earlier works into his late works um, that are more uh, Mozartian in feel. Um, uh, and I say, though, I don't totally agree with that because I do feel like there's plenty of bits of late Strauss that are crunchier than people give it credit for. Oh, sure, absolutely. Like, there are some parts of the Egyptian Helen that are insane. There are some, there's some really, like, brutal music in Daphne also, but the only part anyone knows of Daphne is the last 12 minutes where she gets turned into a tree. Um, (laughs) But, like, he definitely didn't lose this from his vocabulary. He he didn't lose it, but it feels... uh, I don't know. It is it is in some way subjective. And I think I, also this opera sort of sits, you know, what, what differentiates it from a lot of the other Strauss pieces that are more familiar to us is that a lot of them musically, and especially on an orchestral level, have this objective of creating atmosphere. Like when you listen to Rosen Cavalier, you know exactly what it's sort of trying to make you feel. And when you listen to Electra, you know exactly what, you know, whether it's an aesthetic atmosphere, an emotional atmosphere, you know really what it's what it's sort of vaguely going for. And this you don't you don't have that with this opera. It is sort of completely untethered from a um what feels like an aesthetic objective, what feels like a moral objective. I I feel like I sort of go through cycles and like what I associate this with, like in the weird map of my mind. And today it was into the woods because I feel like it's, it's almost like into the woods is not my favorite of the show sometimes shows. Cause it feels like a, you know, fairy tale without a moral. And this feels less like a fairy tale without a moral, but it does have that sort of feeling of coming together and, you know, undoing, and it happens in a way that sort of exists outside of, like, the way we perceive things aesthetically and what the score is trying to evoke versus what, you know, the stage picture might be saying. It it does feel like, uh, maybe it's not so much that it's the end of of an era in, in terms of literally the tools he had at his disposal, but I do feel like it is sort of an intellectual aesthetic shift um, particularly if you listen to his tone poems prior to this opera and tone poems much later in his career. Uh, but uh, I could digress about this for forever, and Oliver is giving me mean looks. So <laughs> mean I, look. I think we should listen okay. to our, our next clip. Uh, this is the uh, following duet between the Empress and the Emperor. Um, uh, the Empress, again, being uh, Julia Verde, and the Emperor being a certain tenor whom we shall not name.
that was a, a, a duet uh, sprinkled with a little bit of the chorus of Unborn Children, who oh. we've mentioned before, but I don't think we've heard yet. I just saw uh, the other day uh, One Child Nation, which is a doc that was nominated for a Academy Award last year. And my, my mom is living with me right now, and so I was looking for things to watch with her. So we decided to watch that. And so many unborn children just thrown in the garbage. It was so depressing. I mean, it was disgusting, horrifying, and depressing. Anyway, unborn children. I hear the unborn children think, like, my, my tangent for that is I spent a um, semester at the University of Bologna where they had this sort of pioneering Drink. medical technique. <laughs> they had this, like, pioneering medical sort of medical studies technique there that was really short-lived where they would make wax models, anatomical wax models. And these are all still preserved in the university collection. And in one of the rooms that you walk into, it's like there are just all of these like cross sections of uteruses with fetuses in them, like all over the walls. Yes. Oh man. I, and when, I hear, I, when I hear this, like I imagine them singing to oh, me. No. I smell a Reggie production in the making. All right, Weston, oh, go, go, go on, Weston. So, <laughs> so with that great image in our heads, um, that was, <laughs> um, so this is sort of the moment where the opera changes into a different gear. Uh, we go from a lot of turmoil uh, and um, confusion into the pure sort of uh, uh, no-holds-barred kind of happy ending mode, as I like to call it. Um, and there's a lot of interesting things happening, happening here, but one that I really want to point out uh, is a little bit more music theory, but I, I, I'll, I'll try to keep it uh, easy for Oliver. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you combine... <laughs> If you compare Wagner and Strauss, which everyone does, and I do especially with this opera, uh, of course, there's the famous Tristan chord in, um, in, in Wagner, where basically you have a chord that you can harmonically uh, make not resolve for a very long time, or that's essentially how Wagner used it anyway. Um, so basically, you're moving towards a climax, uh, that harmonic resolution the whole time. You have that resolution, and then you're finally there. You're finally home. Strauss does something, something very, very similar here and uh, uses very similar techniques. But um, especially at the end of that clip, you can start to see what I like to call uh, the, the series of false climaxes at the end of this opera, where instead of having you sort of postponing the resolution, you have, another, you have a conclusion followed by another even bigger conclusion following another, by another bigger resolution all on top of each other. And that creates this sense of uh, velocity that isn't created by the rhythm. It's created by, by uh, the harmonic structure of the music. And to me, it's so exciting to listen to. Like, I literally start sweating and my, my heart rate goes up whenever I listen to this opera because you can hear uh, Strauss just taking you to this, this place that you thought was so far and then taking you even farther than that over and over and over again. And that's one of the really, really cool things about this finale. And Strauss in general does this like over the course of a minute or he'll do this over the course of like 15 minutes. Mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. part of what makes listening to this piece, especially in its sort of, this piece is often like cut to shreds and it makes the, the integral score to this piece so important because mm -hmm. you get those, you know, sort of across all of Strauss's operas, you get those minutes of those sort of intense false climaxes that build and fall and build and fall. And then they, just don't resolve the end 
or you have like these beautiful things like like the you know the final duet in Ariadne where it's like 15 minutes of that and you're like oh it's over and it's like oh it's not <laughs> let's hear Matt, sort of the continuation oh, I felt like Matt was about to say something Oh, go ahead. Oh, Matt. I was gonna. Uh, that that there is something that's just like very ecstatic about Strauss music when it gets going, and I mean that like in kind of a in kind of a vulgar sense too. No, like the there's fem- always it's this- a female <laughs> orgasm, and I've never had a female orgasm, but that's what I think it is. So, but there's always this kind of like the the high point of a of an Italian aria is usually is often like pretty close to the end of the aria, but in Strauss it's like a lot closer to the middle because the the come down is just as important as the build up. The refractory period, we'd like to say. Exactly, if, if you will. <laughs> On that note, we should listen to uh, what we should listen to that build up, and then we'll get the cool down sort of as our play out. But um, let's listen to the build up as this is the big ensemble moment at the end of the Mozart opera where everyone's getting together and telling you the moral of the story. This is everybody on stage. to that, those final moments there before we get into that cool-down period that Matt uh, described is just one of the coolest moments in all of opera for me. And uh, I don't know if you feel the same way, Harry, but I, that stand that stands out to me right there with the final trio, you know, with oh, yeah. a line begins a line. That's, that's just one of the great moments. And it's so... Uh, it's it's so criminal to me that this opera is so un- underrated when you have a moment like that going. It's like um, a kaleidoscope of different moments where it, you're not quite sure which one is going to twist next and transform what you're hearing, but they kind of all do it at the same time, and it really works. 
And this, this again, is really just uh, one of those moments that leads into uh, a much sort of softer cool down, much like the final trio, actually. I thought that last time I, I did sort of a listen through, because um, it's not the big sort of boom at the end. It, 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 it ends very simply with the initial message that Hoffmannsthal was trying to bring forward, you know, that of, you know, the worth of the unborn children and the worth of putting in the, uh, the effort to uh, making them. We'll hear just a little bit at the very end uh, as a play out. Um, but before we do wrap this up, I want to kind of corral a couple of final thoughts on the opera as a whole. What do you think, Gary? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I think this is like, there are ways in which this piece feels so, so old fashioned and it feels mm. really easy to like ascribe all of the reasons why it feels old fashioned to the, you know, reason why it's sort of neglected canonically. But, like, I don't know. I, I'm not... It, yes, the whole thing is about children and having children. I am not totally persuaded, though, that that is really the point of the show. I feel like this is, like, a piece about empathy. We said this is, like, a really, you know, sort of irrelevant Strauss opera thematically. But, like, it's. I feel like it is about, you know, exploring empathy and finding the empathy in others and looking deeper into yourself to develop that. And I, it does that as a, you know, it has this very poignant message and it does it as a fairy tale, which I think is not going to persuade a lot of adults. And not only does it do it as a fairy tale, but it does it as a really, really complex reworking of how you frame a fairy tale because the, mm. the fairy in fairy tale is in the music in this opera. It's not like it's an even split with the libretto. So the libretto is a challenge and the music is a challenge and together they're almost looking to serve different objectives towards creating a dramatic structure that will not even necessarily persuade some listeners on either a structural or a content basis. So I, I, I put in my notes for this week, I'm like, I don't want to say that if you don't get this opera that like it's your own damn fault and you're not <laughs> hard enough, but that that is sort of where I come down on it. Cause I think, you know, there, this piece is this piece can really stand on its own, and you can take it or leave it. But I think it, but what it's it, not the what first. It, it's not the first opera people should see. It Perhaps is not the first opera that people should see. Even though I have taken that someone to this as their first opera, which is a bad idea. It's it's not even the first Strauss opera that someone <laughs> should see. No. I've introduced people uh, to the concept of opera with just the finale before and had pretty good results. But I, I do agree that, you know, it's very easy thematically if you kind of take a sort of a reductionist look at it. You can really, there's a very easy reading of this that's, that just kind of boils down to uh, women should have children and that's their worth, which is, <laughs> I, I think, an incorrect interpretation, but it's one uh, that... I, I do understand if that puts people off of it. I would also argue that something so uh, traditionally feminine presenting as, uh, as having children, having an opera of this scale dedicated to it, written by two men, I think is a, a pretty interesting opportunity for uh, a feminist analysis. And I think one that we don't really see in a lot of works, especially around this time period, even though Strauss herons are always, you know, great and interesting characters, they're often in more 
traditionally masculine worlds of power and blood and guts and things like this. And they're uh, all really characters too. Yeah. Like, this piece is tough because these don't necessarily feel like very fleshed out characters. And when they walk into, you know, the, the sunset at the end, you don't think like, wow, what's, it's not like the end of Don Giovanni where they have an ending that is sort of structurally very much like this opera. And then you think right. like, well, now we know what they're all going to do and what's going to happen next. It's like, these people are just going to kind of, disappear into the music and that's just fascinating and different from the other Strauss pieces that we know well. Like a lot of late later Strauss it really kind of stands as sort of that last hurrah of sort of the German hyper-romantic style uh, before you know the modernists fully swept in and other movements started to sort of take hold um, and uh, when, when it all comes down to it it's a 164-piece orchestra just blasting away. And how can you not love that? And you get to hear every single one of those 164 pieces individually at some point. Oh, at some point you should look at look and see like the just the percussion section involves some just wild instruments in there. Anyway, uh, this is, I, I think, I can definitively say this is where I started and this is where I'm ending my opinion of the piece. This is Strauss's most underrated opera. And if you're at all interested in Strauss or interested in what we've had to talk about here, I would recommend it. And uh, you should uh, go check it out. It's definitely uh, an underrated gem. Well, before, Certainly not the, not the first opera you want to take somebody to, but I think if I had to pick a last opera to hear, this would, this would be it. Well, before we hear this final clip, uh, I want to say thanks again to Harry Rose. Harry, you're invited back anytime, uh, especially if you want to talk about Into the Woods. Not. <laughs> I don't. Um, but um, I'll, who would have? <laughs> Oliver will skip that one because he hates when I talk about song time. <laughs> who would have thought when I was your age, Harry, that at this point in my life I'd be sitting around with three white guys in their twenties talking about Strauss? You you truly are living the dream, Oliver. <laughs> I am. <laughs> so. Um, well, here it is. The this, are these the last moments of the opera, or is the, the last moments of the opera? You hear the chorus of unborn children singing you out as the curtain falls. What a comforting image.
Thanks, Weston and Harry, and congratulations on completing your first non-paid job as a college graduate, Harry. Exposure dollars. Yeah, I don't know. I still feel like Make Your Garden Grow crushes just about every opera finale in the canon. All right, coming up, guess which Met star of the 90s and the aughts coming back for one night only? It's next on the OBS. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. We're going to get right back to the podcast, folks, but this is our chance to ask you to help Opera Box Score financially. I know that everybody's stretched really thin, but uh, so are we. And Oliver needs a new mic, and his birthday is coming up really soon. I'm going to get the Blue Yeti. Oh my gosh, are you sure, Oliver? That's it's a great choice, Oliver. It That's was what it, pros use. It was recommended by friend of the show, Emily Pogorelts. Yes. And it's also on Consumer Reports, so it has to be the one. What else can they we don't do? lie. What else can we do with your donations, folks? We can maybe uh, get off of SoundCloud onto a different platform that helps us figure out how many people are listening. We can help Alexander Naif head over to Paris <laughs> a couple months early. <laughs> George, there's something you want you'd like to do with our listener money? With our listener donations, uh, well, I would love to. Um, I'd love to figure out how to get our get our show just farther spread and farther afield. So um, maybe pay the team to promote it on social media. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Bristol's Colston Hall, currently named after a 17th century slave trader, will change its name by the fall of 2020, following the toppling of Edward Colston's statue during last week's Black Lives Matter protests in the city. Bristol Music Trust will remove the venue's external signage as a demonstration of, the, of our commitment. As Opera Box Score reported last week, the Vienna State Opera reopened to the public on June 8th. Only 100 people were allowed inside the new audience layout to adhere to social distancing rules. Guests were required to wear masks, but could remove them once seated. According to company director Dominique Meyer, there is a difference in the sound because each body absorbs it. So when the room is empty, there is less absorption and therefore a little more echo. Stefan Listener announced that he was leaving Paris Opera seven months earlier than planned and that Europe's biggest opera house and ballet company was on its knees. His successor, Alexander Naif, told the Associated Foreign Press that he did not know of Listener's early exit and he may not be able to leave Toronto early. The Paris Opera has also announced that it will delay the opening of its 2020-2021 season. In a press release, the company noted that the Palais Garnier will not be available until the end of December 2020. The Metropolitan Opera has announced new cast for its added performances in 2021. In The Barber of Seville, James Morris will take over as Basilio, joining a cast that includes friend of the show, Brenda Ray. Rafael Davila will take on Don Jose and Carmen alongside Varduhi Abrahamian, Susanna Phillips, and Christian Van Horn. For La Traviata, Anita Hardig will sing the title role, and Simon Kienleyside will make a rare Met appearance as Giorgio Germont. And Angela Giorgio will return to the house to sing one performance of La Boheme on February 13th. A new clinical research study has found that listening to Mozart daily could reduce the number of seizures a person with epilepsy experiences. According to the Cremville Brain Institute at Toronto Western Hospital, 
patients who were played Mozart's Sonato for two pianos in D major experienced a reduction in the number of seizures. No word yet on Così Fan Tutte, but we suggest the Suave Trio. Opera San Jose has announced plans to create the Fred Heyman Digital Media Studio, a state-of-the-art performance space housed within Opera San Jose headquarters in Northern California. Exit stage right, American Heldon tenor and Broadway star Claude Heater passed away on May 28th at age 92. And Florentine soprano Yolanda Menugetzer passed away on June 7th at the age of 90. And on this day, June 15th, in 1733, the Opera of the Nobility was founded as a rival company to Handel's Royal Academy in London. In 1861, the birth of Austrian-American Contralto Ernestina schumann Heinck in Lieben, near Prague. In 1894, the birth of American composer and arranger Robert Russell Bennett, whose works for the stage included Maria Malibran, The Enchanted Kiss, and Endymion. In 1926, birth of American opera administrator Carol Fox. She was the general manager of the Lyric Opera of Chicago. In 1929, birth of Austria Australian pianist Jeffrey Parsons, a recital partner to many of our favorite singers. In 1938, the first performance of Krzyzanek's Karl V in Prague. And in 1958, birth of Hungarian soprano Andrea Rost. So that was from everyone's favorite Donizetti opera, <laughs> Pia di Tolomei, uh, one that I really can't imagine why it didn't make it onto our bracket from last month. <laughs> can, <laughs> you're still, you're it, still so. bitter about the, the candied stuff, aren't you, buddy? <laughs> I mean, if it's up against that, how can you really say what is better or what's worse? <laughs> now, I have never heard of Yolanda Meneguzer, but that is really impressive singing. She was. Kind, I, I have a. I have a feeling that she was a. She was a contemporary of like your Joan Sutherland and your Maria Callas. So there wasn't really a, a huge market share left available uh, for up for sopranos who were singing uh, impressive Italian music in that day and age. So when you suggested this clip, I was so confused because I thought that the name of the singer was Pia de Tolomei. I was like, where is that in our rundown? I have no idea why you added this, but there it is. <laughs> it's one of those things. So no, that's one of the 87 Donizetti operas that never gets done. Alexander Neef is the busiest guy in opera, and uh, he's so busy he's got two jobs at the same time. But luckily, Paris Opera is delaying their um, the beginning of their season, so maybe he's got bottoms up a little more time thanks to COVID. I mean, that was the most bizarre back and forth I think I've ever seen one opera company do, which is listeners leaving early, but the opera house is opening late. Uh, what's it like to be Alexander Neef and to find out by reading the newspaper that the next job you have is like opening up early? He's probably like, am I the only one working around here? What is going on with you all? 
I mean, the man is pretty incredible, but he's not a god. I, I, I don't know what I would do in his shoes. He's I mean, very well-dressed, though. I have to give him that. He's extremely well-dressed. Uh, I, I guess he has to leave Toronto early, right? I mean, I guess you have to go to the next biggest thing. <laughs> there's Toronto and then there's <laughs> Paris. <laughs> you know. I mean, right? Surely, surely you have you have to move on to to the next big thing, which is clearly, you know, in a sorry state of affairs. And and he knows that he's done good work at COC and and he just moves on. And somebody underneath him gets gets the nod now and gets gets ready to take over from him. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of time for the news to keep spinning out on this one to figure out who is next. But we'll be waiting and seeing, I guess. If you're at the Vienna State Opera, why are you doing shows for a hundred people? Like, what is the value in that? I I think that the value is just maintaining the some sort of a place of relevance in the general culture. I mean, I don't think that a couple months without opera is going to make Vienna forget that it exists. But you've got people that miss going there and who want to be there. So if you can throw some sort of a bone to to your your supporters to keep them engaged i have to imagine that was a big part of it especially considering it's still not you know there's still a good amount of risk involved with going anywhere around any other people yeah well and according to the the classic fm article right so guests have to wear masks and once they're in they can take them off although dominique meyer he says quote there's a difference because each body absorbs sound so when the room's empty, there's less absorption and therefore a little more echo. Yeah, yeah. thanks, Einstein. Like, we couldn't yeah. figure that out ourselves and know that it was going to be suboptimal. It, clearly, we're not paying you for your acoustic knowledge here. Well, I'm jealous that those people, those 100 people, get to hear friend of the show, Samuel Hasselhorn, who opened up this season. What a season it's been on Opera Box Score. We began with Samuel Hasselhorn, and it sounds like we're ending with People calling in from Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) How are the mighty fallen, Oliver? But honestly, I think that the sound quality of our interviews is actually better than them calling in by phone at WNUR. The phones at WNUR are fakakta. So um, I'm not mad about that part of it. For sure. You know what's going to have great sound and great acoustics is the Fred Hyman Digital Media Studio at Opera San Jose. Did you look I into that? Do you, do you know what that's going to be like? It's insane. Uh, I mean, it's like a state-of-the-art live streaming center for audio, video. They're going to be doing, you know, studio productions, which are going to be videotaped and live streamed. Um, it's incredible. I, I, I don't know if their repertoire is going to change at all. In my opinion, I think the repertoire in San Josie has been a little conservative for my tastes, but if it's being extremely well produced in these surreal times and they've had someone to, to drop a whole bunch of money on to do it, great. Make it happen. Make it great. I mean, I think we have a certain amount of generosity for a live streamed quality right now. That generosity is only going to go away the longer we go into the pandemic. We're going to expect more. We're going to demand more from our audio and video in this field. And it sounds like Opera San Jose is poised to deliver just that. 
And then there is Colston, uh, which as a company never heard of, but now it's on our radar because they are changing their name. Thank you. Yeah, Colston Hall, this is interesting. So um, I, I don't know the venue, um, but as you may have read, you know, some days ago, this is through the BBC that I read this, that this crowd just appeared and just tore down the statue of Edward Colston to their credit and threw it into the, the Bristol Channel. And the mayor of Bristol said, you know what? Uh, no one's going to be prosecuted. We're just going to leave that statue there for a while. We'll probably retrieve it at some point and put it in a museum and leave it as a teaching moment. But hell yeah, everybody is making great choices, in my opinion, here in Bristol. Get rid of these statues, get rid of this signage, change these names, quote, as they say, as a demonstration of our commitment. So James Morris was featured as Don Giovanni in the broadcast, uh, the rebroadcast from the Met uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I had never seen that Don Giovanni performance. And James Morris in 19, whatever it was, 83 or 78, sounded incredible. To think that he is still singing 30 plus years later, uh, and he's going to be singing Basilio in Barber Seville next year. Uh, I have no idea who Rafael de Villa is, and maybe I should learn who he is, but I don't know why he got kind of highlighted in this press release. I guess we'll find out together. Do you know who that is, um, Matt? I- I don't think I've ever heard him before. Okay, well, but maybe he's going to be. But a I have. Who knows? Who know, We're looking for. We're all there. All up there looking for the next big Don Jose. <laughs> yeah, and what is really the greatest opera? Escamillo in this production, presumably. Yes, uh, and then Angela Giorgio is coming back. They're letting her back in the building. <laughs> it's probably been like a decade since she was there. I. I was just starting to really follow Opera News around the time she was uh, not Opera News, the concept, not the publication, um, right around the time that she was kind of bowing out of things left and right. And everyone was saying that she would never be back in New York to sing again. So we'll see if she has the last laugh or not so much. February 13th, presumably that's right around Valentine's Day. Uh, it's I think we could presume that, yeah. <laughs> it's not a bad, that's not a I bad weekend to go see I think Lamar. we even know, know that it's near Valentine's Day. <laughs> it's not a moving target. It's, it's, so, <laughs> it's true, Valentine's Day is not a movable feast. I mean, it always feels like it. But, um, You're such a romantic that'd guy. Good, that'd be a good show to go see on, on Valentine's Day weekend. Sure. Not that anybody can go see it, of course, but... Well, we'll in, in person. It's all the way out in February. Don't don't jinx it just yet. Oh, you're such an optimist, Oliver. Uh, so February, I'm going to look at the calendar. February 13th is actually a Saturday, so it is Valentine's Day weekend. Okay, good call. Okay, there we go. Like Angela Giorgi's going to do a weeknight performance of La Boheme. You, you knew it was a Saturday. Yeah, it's a, she's doing a Wednesday matinee. Yeah. So a research that says that listening to the sonata for two pianos uh, reduces seizures. That's, I mean, stuff like that makes me happy to hear about it, but it just feels like so random. Like why that piece of all Mozart pieces? Like That is odd. Don't plants also grow faster when they're played Mozart? I mean, I feel like Mozart kind of is this cure-all, you know, similar to like CBD. That's what big Mozart wants us to think. <laughs> I feel like it should be concerto number 
20, is it 21 that has a really famous Andante section, the Elvira Madigan? That's, that's what you should listen to to stop having seizures. And then we it have... It should definitely the, not be Rondo a la Turca. Way too up-tempo. Uh, then we have... Uh, that, uh, one's pretty, that one's pretty fr- frisky. Uh, we have in the on this day a Cranach opera, and I'm sure that Weston has all the recordings of that opera and can tell us <laughs> all about it, but he's not on this segment, so sorry about that. Weston, you'll have to save that for your next Hall of Fame. Krennic is a fabulous composer. One day I'm going to do a production of Johnny Spielt Auf. I cannot wait. It's on the, the bucket list for me to do that Krennic opera. It's the wackiest piece of music I've heard in a long time. Well, we have a good call from Ashley, so let's go to good call, bad call. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. So as promised, this one is from Ashley, who couldn't join us today. Um, she says, this is amazing. It's a guy who has never been exposed to opera, hearing Pavarotti sing Nessun Dorma for the first time. If you've ever needed a reminder about the visceral reaction to opera, or why we love what we love and do what we do, watch this video. We will put the link on our website, which you all go to so much. But here's a little sample of that. And one more from Weston. But I'll actually let Matt go, because Matt Wesson's ties on to Matt's. Uh, my good call is that in honor of Juneteenth this Friday, the Metropolitan Opera has decided that they're going to extend their previously scheduled broadcast of La Forza del Destino with Leontine Price. And everyone who's listened to the show knows that my first choice for Opera Box Score Hall of Fame was Leontine Price. And that's an opera that you don't get to hear that much. Uh, so let's celebrate that excellence. And? And following up after that on Saturday is going to be uh, the broadcast of Akhenaten, which here in Chicago, I don't think we've gotten on PBS yet. So I'm definitely going to be tuning into that. And that features friend of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo, and friend of the show, Zachary James, and is the opera we talked about probably for three months straight at the beginning of this season. And dovetailing off of that, the next day... Their broadcast is going to be Philip Glass's Sachikraha, and that's a good call from Weston. That's a, a super lineup, and I'll wrap it up with my good call as well. Thanks a lot to Opera America. Uh, the Spring Magazine had a feature on opera podcasts and radio shows, and Opera Box Score got a shout out. So, anybody joining us from the Opera America? Family, thanks for hanging out with us and be sure to share our show with the people that you like. All right, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. This podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. Creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Thanks again to our guests, Frederick Ballantyne and Harry Rose, from Matt Cummings and Weston Williams, and George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with pride. We're back with an all-new podcast next Wednesday, June 24, when we go inside the huddle with stage director Allison Moritz, plus more opera news, more hot takes, More chips and salsa, join us.